This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, with the help of special guest Fonda Lee, we cover Mario Puzo's 1969 novel, The Godfather. Pleased to welcome a very special guest to help us cover The Godfather, Fonda Lee. Fonda is the author of The Green Bone Saga, which begins with Jade City, which recently won the 2018 World Fantasy Award for Best Novel, and was nominated for both the Nebula Award and the Locust Award. Fonda is also the author of young adult novels Zero Boxer, Exo, and Crossfire, which have garnered numerous accolades as well. Oh, and she holds black belts in both karate and kung fu, making her literally one of the most badass writers around. Welcome, Fonda. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. It's so cool to have you on. I it's 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 awesome I, for this project especially. Well, you did say, do you want to spend several hours talking about the Godfather book <laughs> and movies? And I was like, actually, yes, yes, I want to do that. So I'm excited to be here. That's amazing. We we love the enthusiasm. Well, uh, the Godfather movies and book um, have uh, definitely had an impact on my own writing. So I think there's. Um, plenty of stuff I could t- geek out about over um, the material for a while. It's one of those things where you go back and 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 visit something that is clearly foundational for so many things that came after. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of like I was thinking of Game of Thrones. I was thinking all these different things and seeing all these connections to The Godfather because I'm realizing that this book obviously came first and and it had to be such a big influence for things and and especially once it got into pop culture through the films. Um, yeah, just really cool to, to, to see that for myself. So I could definitely see how that could be a, a, an influence. I also have been surprised by the number of people who don't know that The Godfather started out as a book. And mm, oftentimes yeah. I will talk about the book and I'll have people say, like, it's a book? Because they're familiar with the movies. And, uh, you know, obviously... Um, just the star power of um, the actors at the time, you know, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, that's the movies have really eclipsed the book in terms of their importance in pop culture. But it all started with this book. And, uh, and so I'm glad that we're having a chance to actually talk about both the the original material and then the films that spawned um, out of it. Yeah, I was one of those, actually. I, uh, I didn't know that the book existed until until fairly recently, and this is that's why this podcast is so great because we're it's it really like lets me lets me see where these projects came from, and I was I was really surprised because as I read the film stayed very close to the books for those for those films like like you said they broke into pop culture and they become so so culturally relevant because they they went on to shape cinema, and it's just interesting because I think that overshadows the fact that there there was a book that that it was was there at the time so it's cool to to come back around to it and really like hopefully we can give it its due yeah i mean it it uh for me i haven't read the book or seen the film i know i know um but i'm so glad that i'm able to do it for the first time for the show i think it, it should make it for an inter- interesting experience but of course i've i've sort of absorbed a lot of this stuff through pop culture um like there's a episode of futurama that very strongly references The Godfather throughout. Um, and I kept thinking of it because <laughs> that was like my touchstone for this material a little bit. Um, but then there's also just so many like sayings that came up 
you know, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse and like stuff like that, that I, I didn't know was from the Godfather, but I've definitely heard a million times. Uh, so it was really cool to see that origin. And then, yeah, like you said, because th- that's what we do on this podcast. Uh, that happened with us for, for Jaws, for Die Hard. There's been several ones that people don't even know that is based off a book. One of the one of the major things that I that I noticed in the in the in my reading this time uh, that I was kind of drawing comparisons to was Breaking Bad. Um, I was I was really oh yeah I really was feeling like a Breaking Bad vibe. Any crime show or book or movie like has probably owes a lot to Godfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I I think um, one of the things that uh, it just speaks to the power of um, this franchise is that if you Google you know top movies of the last deck or last hundred years or top movies ever oftentimes you will see the godfather and the godfather part two on that list mm. and uh if, if you ever hear uh, you know that sort of raspy like marlon brando imitation <laughs> voice you like you immediately know where that's from so um it's become so iconic but the godfather the book is an interesting animal because i've read it several times and it, it always elicits a bit of a mixed reaction from me because there, I believe it's in many ways a brilliant book, but also deeply flawed. Mm. And this is one of the instances I almost always tell um, people that the book is better than the movie in like 95% of cases. Um, Same. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I would say most of the time I find the, the source material superior to um, the, the, the adaptation. Um, but in this case, I really believe um, that uh, that Francis Ford Coppola exceeded the original material, and he did something really incredible with the Godfather films um, that rightfully eclipsed the Godfather. Um, and the the book itself is uh, is is an incredible work, but there's also parts of it that just are baffling and bizarre. I, I, I'm so glad that yes. you're saying all of these things right now because you're 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 saying everything that I feel. It's so <laughs> flawed in some in some ways, and then there's parts that are just so iconic that stick with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I always have this kind of like weird relationship with The Godfather, where it's this this book I love. And yes, and yet I'm very um, glad that it was not completely faithfully adapted for the films <laughs> and that the filmmakers made some really good choices yeah. um, to to make the films, I think, better than than some of the source material. So we've Luke and I have had this conversation countless times at this point because it's the nature of this podcast. But the the book being better than the movie thing um, I, I also tend to agree with it. You know, the source material usually just let you like in a book, you're able to dive so much more into it. Um, but I felt like, like you were just saying, uh, I was worried that I was going to come in here and just like rain on everybody's parade. And I thought I was a little worried that, that everybody was going to be like, Oh, mm. it's a flawless book. But <laughs> I thought that it was less focused, like much less focused than mm. the movies. The things that they cut elevated this film in such a crazy way. So I'm glad to hear you, you say that. Cause, cause I, I agree. Yeah. No, there's um, there's whole parts of this book that every time I read it, I just skim as quickly as possible. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's uh, and and yet and there's also parts where I stop and I savor, you know, every mm. part of it. So um, so it is a very uneven book for me, and especially um, you, you know because I feel like there's parts of this book that al- it's almost like Puzo was trying to pad his word count, 
And I, <laughs> I, I wonder about that because, um, yeah. and, and Luke, maybe you can speak to this a little bit more, but Puzo had written, at the time he wrote The Godfather, he had written two other books. So The Godfather was his third novel. Mm-hmm. And he had written these other two books that were really critically acclaimed. So he had written The Dark Arena, and then he'd written The Fortunate Pilgrim. And they were both um, well-received critically, but they didn't make him any money. Um, and uh, I can, I mean, I can, I can relate to that, <laughs> that feeling <laughs> as an author where you're like, hey, I'm like, I'm doing some pretty good work, but like, I really need to, you know, pay the mortgage and buy groceries and stuff like that. So um, he, for his third novel, he just, he set out, he basically was like, I am writing this book to make money. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. you know, the critical acclaim, <laughs> screw that. Like, I just want to write something that makes money. And so I, I you know, um, he had, he started writing the Godfather and, um, it off, it feels like there's parts of it that are very soap opera-ish that he put in there largely to kind of titillate or, you know, mm. he's got like this whole Hollywood subplot and like c- scenes with, you know, the whole, I mean, what is the point of even most of the subplot involving um, Fontaine and his like womanizing exploits. There's so much of it. That's a great question. <laughs> and not to mention the other super notable uh, subplot that we're definitely going to get to is the uh, the trip to the doctor with the doctor right. in Vegas. And it's like, what is this? What is this? Yeah. For? Right. I mean, what? Why? And and so I I often feel like, you know, maybe he was just trying to add the soap opera-ish element or late and pad yeah. his word count um, because no one needed that amount of detail. So bizarre, yeah. and uh, and so thank goodness um, that was that was not that's something you can completely cut of the book and not lose any of of the impact. But I mean, he clearly succeeded. The book went on to um, be picked up by Hollywood and sell a bazillion copies. But like I said, you know, parts of it you're like, what, where, what, 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 why? Yeah. I mean, maybe someone told him, like, you got to have sex, you got to have violence. I mean, this was also written in 1969, so I feel like it was probably pretty edgy for its time with all this content. It feels to me like very 60s, like, if it's a little sleazy in times. Oh, sure. Yes. And he, I, I think, really meant to create that pulp kind of tone. I mean, it, it is, it's, it, it is, has that, has that kind of, like, pulp feel to it. Um, and uh, it almost this despite itself, is yeah. elevated to a higher level. <laughs> uh, well, we've, we've already gotten a little bit into his bio, so I'm just going to go over a little bit more um, just so we can fully talk about uh, Puzo here. Uh, so he was born in Hell's Kitchen um, in the area of New York City in 1920 to a poor family from Italy. Many of his books draw heavily on this heritage. After graduating from the City College of New York, he joined the U.S. Army Air Forces in World War II, Because of his poor eyesight, he was not allowed to undertake combat duties, but he was made a public relations officer stationed in Germany. Puzo then returned to New York, where he attended the New School for Social Social Research, then Columbia University. Uh, So, yes, so during the 1950s and early 1960s, Puzo worked as a writer-editor for publisher Martin Goodman's magazine management company. The company's, specifically the company's lines of men's magazines, pulp titles like Mail, True Action, and Swank, under the pseudonym Mario Cleary, uh, and he also wrote the World War II adventure features for True Action. So, so maybe that's where that pulp background comes from. Like he was literally writing for men's magazines. Yeah, yeah, I can see that makes a lot of sense. 
<laughs> yeah. And then so like you referenced, uh, yeah, so he, he had written to cr- critical acclaim, but not for, you know, not for a lot of money. So uh, his publisher told him that he thought if the mafia plotline had been more prominent in The Fortunate Pilgrim, it would have been more successful. So he decided to write a story outline uh, for The Godfather. Um, it was rejected by the publisher, and but he was able to find a publisher eventually, um, and it sold based off of the outline. So he used uh, a lot of uh, anecdotes he had heard uh, throughout the years working at the Pulp Magazine about mafia organizations. Um, but he actually wasn't a part of the mafia. I don't know if people think he actually was, but he wasn't. This is all just done through research, he, not like direct. Although he grew up in that area and was Italian, so I feel like a lot of it was probably going on at the time he was he was growing up. Yeah, I actually read some um, stuff about Puzo that he really did not, um, uh, you know, wasn't drawing really from nonfiction research when he created the Corleone family. He mm-hmm. created this fantasy um, if you will, of what the mafia was in his mind, no doubt based on you know, things he had heard and you know his own imagining and the background that he had. But it's not as if he went and interviewed any real gangsters. And it's, right. um, it's fascinating because uh, after The Godfather achieved so much mainstream success, what, uh, what you have seen is real life gangsters almost modeling themselves after the fantasy gangsters that Puzo created. So there was this there's this interesting like life imitating art imitating life um, <laughs> cycle going on because um, you know Puzo's gangsters were so compelling uh, stylistically and um, you know just their moral code that uh, that it kind of filtered in and affected real life. It, he, it wasn't as if you know he had based those characters on specific people and it was it was much more fictional um than i think uh you know a lot of people realize yeah absolutely he i mean i was thinking throughout that that this family was i mean uh, the godfather himself is almost set up as like a batman type character Mm -hmm. who's who's really just like because the system has failed everybody so he's out there you know, like cleaning up and getting real justice for people. And not to mention he has like this, this code, right? He's like, he's honorable within while being a criminal. So it's like, uh, and I, I do, I want to give him props for the fact that like the core elements in this book that went on to be in the film are, are fantastic. Like I think the family dynamic and the way that they have that set up and the intrigue, the political intrigue, you talked about game of Thrones, Luke, that it's uh, reminded me of that so much. Um, but just like the first scene, the wedding, like that's like it pulled me in. It's so iconic. Um, so I think there with all the stuff being said that we said before, I do want to say like Don Corleone is one of the most iconic characters ever. And he created him and he would go on to be played by Marlon Brando. Yeah. And it's also um, really a testament to Puzo's the strength of this um, novel's opening that Puzo reframes the moral context of mm-hmm. the entire book in the first chapter because he has a task ahead of him when he sets out um, in this book. He has to basically make the reader empathize with a criminal kingpin. And uh, he does that really skillfully because um, he opens with these, um, these minor characters who've all suffered injustice in the world, right? We've got um, the the baker who um, needs to have his son-in-law immigrate. We've got the 
um, Bonacera, whose daughter has been um, assaulted and he's not getting mm. justice from you know, the courts. So we have all these minor characters who have nowhere else to turn. And then Pouzeau sets up uh, Don Corleone as the social benefactor. So right away what he does is um, he tells the reader, hey, this lawful world that you, the reader, believe in is actually um, flawed and unjust. And here I'm going to give you this character who makes everything right. Uh, and and so it's so afterwards, no matter what um, what the Corleones do, you're on their side. And there's mm-hmm. there's you know this um, thing that we writers do, which is like it, the the first impression of a character really stays with the reader, and they want to hang on to it. So. I, I think it's really important as a writer to think about how you introduce your protagonist because that's going to have this lingering effect throughout the entire novel. And Puzo does that really well. Um, it's interesting in particular because he has these three characters who um, want different things. The three sort of minor characters that go to Don Corleone and ask for, for favors, right? We've got one character who wants vengeance We've got mm-hmm. one character who wants respect, right? Fontaine is basically kind of lost respect. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we want uh, influence, the guy who wants, um, you know, his, the, the immigration uh, papers for his son-in-law. So those are three things um, that are especially difficult for immigrants to a new country to come to. And The Godfather has often been described as like the, this... Um, this archetypal story of, uh, you know, the immigrant um, experience in America because it's about these characters who come to America to find, um, you know, a good life and fortune for their family. And so that's also part of the appeal of the Corleones, that there's, that they are um, immigrants to America and they have, they've carved out their like their own life and power and influence in this land that they're, you know, not native to. So, um, so you've got these things kind of going on with like these characters who have come to this country and the system is failing them, but here Don Corleone will take care of you. And, and it's, it's really masterful how Puzo um, sets up uh, the character so that, yeah, all of a sudden you are like rooting for these, for these <laughs> mafia guys, the whole book. Yeah, and to what you're saying, he even tells a character like, uh, "That's what you get for." <laughs> I forget how he phrases it, but it's it's like that's what you get for trusting in the American justice system <laughs> when you should have been trusting me. Right, right. <laughs> I also love the the friendship element. Like he's it's it's all it's oh, all framed yeah. as friendship. It's not threatening. Yeah. It's and the way that he goes about it is just like it, it's it really it's endearing. It, it I think that's another another reason why why readers are are uh, attracted to him. Oh, it was brilliant. Him collecting favors and, and, and friendship and it's all just respect and, and there's all this rich subtext of what's going on in all these scenes, but it's nobody addresses it outright. Um, yeah, so cool. Very, very cleverly done. Um, so I did want to speak on, so the success of the novel, this is something that is amazing to me because like we said, a lot of people don't know this is based off of a novel. Um, the novel remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 67 weeks and sold over 9 million copies in two years. And it was published in 1969, and I believe the film came out in 72. 
So that's before the first film. So before the first film even came out, it sold 9 million copies. It became the best-selling published work in history for several years. And yet, here we are with a lot of people who don't even know it was based off the book. So it's kind of amazing. I guess it also shows the power of these films that came yeah, after. It almost, it also, I bet you if you ask like the generation above us, I'm sure they all knew it was a book. Like it might be an age gap thing because it's like 69. Yeah, but still like it shows what's, it shows what, what, what has the legacy and what maybe doesn't, <laughs> right? That's actually a little depressing to me as an author. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that like you can write this book that spends, you know, two years on the New York Times bestseller list, sells 9 million copies and... Um, then the movie comes along, and all anyone can talk about are the movies. Yeah, that's yeah. that's actually kind of depressing. Uh, well, <laughs> it, yeah, for my writer soul. Yeah, and at least uh, his at least his movies were good. You would hate for that to be the opposite, where it's like the movie was so bad that that's all anyone remembers too. Right. Um, maybe like a middle ground where the movie's pretty good, but the book is clearly better. Maybe that's the sweet. <laughs> 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 he also wrote the screenplay for both The Godfather and Godfather 2 and the eventual Godfather Part 3, which we can mention later, um, which isn't really adapted from this novel. And then he also wrote other screenplays. Like he wrote a screenplay for the film Earthquake. And Superman, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Richard Donner's Superman and included, uh, which also included the plot for Superman 2. He also collaborated on stories A Time to Die and Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. Wow. Um, and then he ended up dying of heart failure in 1999 in his home in Manor Lane in New York, um, which I thought was interesting because we see that that's how the Godfather himself dies in this book. Yeah. So I don't know if there's like interesting kind of life imitating art, art imitating life thing there too. Like, you know, the original Godfather himself, Puzo. Yeah. It's interesting. I've also read a number of Puzo's other works. So after the God success of The Godfather, he wrote a number of other mafia novels. So he wrote The Sicilian, The Last mm -hmm. Dawn. Um, Omerta and a few others that aren't coming to me immediately. Um, in my mind, uh, the the other two that I think are um, really quite excellent that he's written are The Sicilian and The Last Dawn. Some of his later mafia novels really take a nosedive. <laughs> like you can tell he's kind of really? just trying to cash in on um, the fact that he's uh, Mario Puzo and he can, you know, <laughs> write whatever and have it uh, succeed because they... They really, uh, they're, they're really not as good um, as I think what I think of as like his peak powers, which were really the Godfather, the Sicilian, the Last Dawn, in my mind are kind of the triumvirate of Puzo's work. Now, isn't, is the Sicilian also within the Cor Corleone family stuff or is it a totally different story? So it is a totally different story, but it includes Michael Corleone as a secondary character. So it takes place during the period when Michael Corleone is in Sicily and he is asked yeah. to, um, to do a favor basically to help somebody there. And um, this, that's, there's a whole story. So it's not about Michael Corleone, but he kind of comes in as a secondary character. So it's connected to the Godfather, but is its own story entirely. Interesting. That's really cool. So, so before we get along too far into the plot, I did want to mention, uh, that I have had a copy of Jade City for a while, and I've been dying to read it. And uh, what we've decided to do is we're going to read it during our coverage of the films, uh, which are going to be our next two episodes. And uh, James and I are going to try and read the novel as, as much, probably try and finish it for next week for The, for the Godfather. And then we're going to make some comparisons, um, because I know that that was a big inspiration for you, or, or a 
at least a small inspiration for you. Yeah, so um, so my novel Jade City uh, has been described on many occasions as the Godfather with magic and kung fu. I'm I'm sold. Yeah, so that yeah. is that's and that's a great it's a great uh, pitch, right? And and it works. It really does um, <laughs> because uh, the the novel is um, a blend of my love of. Um, gangster stories and films, both from Western culture, like The Godfather, Goodfellas, Scarface, Scorsese films, mm. etc., and um, Eastern culture, including Hong Kong crime dramas, Johnny Toe's films, um, you know, Infernal Affairs, Election, etc. So, um, so they they blend kind of a, a martial arts um, uh, Asian crime drama sensibility with the family saga political maneuvering elements of The Godfather. Um, so clearly, uh, you know, there's there's inspiration there and elements um, of The Godfather that stuck with me for so long that they influenced parts of, of my own story. But, um, but it's a great uh, pitch line because, um, well, because everyone knows what The Godfather is and then add magic and kung fu and, and yeah. you kind of get a sense of what the book is and it's very accurate. That's awesome. So I did want to ask you guys about... Um about mafia stories in general and how they strike you because I have this I have this issue like I, I love the Scorsese films and I typically will enjoy a mafia film but I, I find it hard to watch mafia films occasionally because I always compare them to The Godfather and I always I always feel like I'm always I'm just gonna get a different version of something like that and not that's not because obviously Goodfellas is completely different and and as you said there are there are plenty of mafia films out there but I I find it really interesting because it just this just seems like the gold standard to me. So I have watched a lot of mafia films and The Godfather is always the gold standard for me because there um, is something in it that I don't find in the others and that is this um, emphasis on the family and uh that like essentially the the saga that saga of family and friendship that's at the core of the godfather a lot of other mafia films honestly are um are are about gangsters killing each other often like some sort of turf war or you know someone betrays somebody or like some sort of um plot involving the cops um, you know, think of like Untouchables, which is also a great, yeah, great film. Uh, mafia film, right? Great film. Very different, though. Um, so a lot of other mafia films kind of focus on the crime element and mm. on that uh, war between the crime element and lawful society. Right. It makes me think of uh, The Departed as well. Yes, The Departed, another great film. So that is at the crux of a lot of the mafia films. Well, for me, The Godfather is more about the family and about these characters and you can almost i would never take away that crime element because it's so intrinsic but it fades into the background the fact that these characters are mafia almost becomes like a secondary consideration for the audience and that's why to me the godfather like succeeds above you know a lot of other mafia stories um because it's it's the the betrayals and um, the, the events that happen, the deaths, like they feel, I think, more human um, than what you get from a lot of other uh, crime drama films. Yeah, well, and for me, it was that experience of, I, I didn't realize there was this massive touchstone. I mean, I guess I realized it, but I didn't, I didn't know in all the ways in which it is a touchstone. And now that it's fallen into place, and, and I'm sure this will continue to happen when I see the films, um, all of these comparisons are just like cascading in and I'm like, oh my God, this is clearly the, the, the progenitor of so much. 
Um, so that's been really just really fun for me because I, like I said, I don't know anything about the story until until this week when I read it. Um, oh, so before we get into the plot as well, I wanted to ask you because we always do this when we have guests on. Uh, when was your first time reading the book? When was your first time seeing the movie, if you can remember, and which came first? So I saw the movie first, and I can't remember when I saw it, but it was probably sometime in my maybe late teens or early 20s, so long, quite a while ago, and, okay. um, uh, and then watched, obviously, the other Godfather movie. So I came to the book after having seen the movies and read it probably, oh, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. Um, so okay, so that's pretty recent. Yeah, so relatively recent. Um, so I had been like a fan of the movies long before I read the book, and um, and and so kind of that that I think um, you know uh, really caused me to sort of co- draw comparisons throughout as I was reading. Cool. Uh, James, before we get into plot, I wanted to ask you, so you've seen the film, but you had never read the book. Um, so what was like your general takeaway from from reading the book for the first time? Well, other than the, the stuff that we talked about before, where I felt like it, it was, was less focused, I did enjoy getting a little more context for some of the main family characters, like understanding more of where they were coming from. Um, I was th- I was wondering how much more we would get from Michael's point of view. Because in the movie, obviously, we're not in his head. So I wanted to see his like turn, his his, the, his turning from good to corrupt or whatever you want to call it. His I guess his fall from grace or his embracing of the family business. His, exactly when he embraces it. So I, I thought that we would get a little more of that, and I, I honestly didn't didn't get much more than what is really in the film. But I do. I do love that arc too, though. I love I love seeing him him reluctantly take the role and then just being so good at it. That brings up to me the the interest. One of the interesting notes I had was the POV and how this novel, um, like you said, it opens with the three characters who all need things, um, and then they all come to the Godfather. But when it comes to the Godfather, we get a omniscient um, kind of bird's eye view. Um, so you get a lot of statements about like this is the way things are, right? Um, and so this is the way, and so when we're told that this is how the Godfather is, it's not leaving any worm for debate. It's not like this is a, this is a one character's perception of the Godfather. It's basically God telling us this is how things are. That's another thing is I felt like he was more than just this, this like patriarchal figurehead or like even the, even the brains behind it. Like he really did feel like he was his own government. He was his own religion. He was God in this, in this story. Like he is a God to all of these people. He the, the fact that they they think of his his word as gospel, anything he says is going to mm. come true no matter the odds. He really is like this god in their eyes, I think. There's a very interesting scene near the beginning of the book um, that I I think is meaningful for a specific reason. So, the Godfather meets with all these different um, people who come to petition him. And it's as his um, daughter's wedding, so as a Sicilian, he cannot refuse them. Right, There's, that's kind of mm-hmm. part of that that yeah. know, cultural context. And then after the wedding, he goes to the hospital to um, see his former conciliary, who is uh, now on his deathbed. And in this scene, his um, his conciliary Jenko is dying and begs the Godfather to save him from death. And basically says, you know, if death comes to me, he's and he sees you, he's going to be afraid, or you know, and go, you know, save me from death, Godfather. So, uh, you know, that does two things. It reinforces 
the power that Don Corleone has, um, the thrall that he holds everyone in, that they, you know, they would ask him for anything, including, um, you know, basically asking him to spare them from death itself. But of course, Jenko dies and, and the Godfather basically says, you know, you know, prepare yourself like, you know, you're, you're going to die tonight and there's, there's nothing I can do about it. So it, and it also, uh, tells the reader there's only one thing that the Godfather cannot cheat and that's death. And that is like, he can, he can basically solve all the other problems. He can get, you know, Fontaine, this part in this movie, he can intimidate his rivals. He can do, there's so, he can influence politicians. He can do all this stuff. But the one thing he can't cheat is death. And that kind of becomes the only, that becomes this turning point. And there's so many parts in this, in the plot that are really based, you know, on this fact that, that, that death is, uh, is the, there's so, all these plot points revolve around betrayal or assassination or death itself. I was going to talk about that specific part too. That's that's. I'm, I'm glad you, you you zeroed in on the same scene. It was um. It was in like you talking about it just gave me chills. So um. It it really works well, <laughs> and and it is. And I also like that we see that Vito uh also kind of acknowledges that that is his one thing he has no power over, and we see him throughout thinking about his own mortality and how he knows that he won't live forever and that it's going to have to be passed on. So in another way, he's kind of humble in a certain sense. And that he knows he he is aware of the limits of his own power, um, whereas instead of a character who is like believes his own press and thinks he's invincible, which would be a very different character. Right. right. And, uh, you know, at uh, one point I remember hearing an interview um, with Francis Ford Coppola where he, he said he read The Godfather. He had been tasked to turn this into a movie. He read The Godfather and he really zeroed in on the fact that this is a story about succession. And that really speaks to what you just said, which is the Godfather is aware of his own mortality. No, much, no matter how much power he has in this life, this thing that he has built has to be passed on um, and you know, to one of his children. So the story is also um, about very much um, about succession. I want to come back to something that you said, Luke, which was uh, the, the authorial voice. And mm-hmm. the distance that Puzo employs, right? He he has that omniscient POV, and he moves around between within the he- around the different heads of the characters. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of a the, the I guess the prevailing trend in fiction these days is I, I would say tends to be against omniscient voice. Um, you always hear the writing advice like, oh, don't head hop, right? But here yeah. you have an author who's working, you know, j- several decades prior who head cops very frequently and I think quite effectively. Um, and one thing that he does uh, is, is create this narrative distance in the way he tells the story, not just the fact that it, there's an omniscient voice and there's this narrator basically telling you how things are, but the way that he, he, comes about some of the major plot points is interesting. He has this habit of basically like telling you what happened and then backtracking <laughs> to show it. Mm-hmm. So this happens both when, uh, well, first of all, when, when Vito is shot, the, the attempted assassination, is a scene where Michael learns about it from the newspaper and then he backtracks to tell you what happened. And of course the scene where um, 
where Bonacera, he gets a call in the middle of the night and he's wondering what the heck is going to happen and what's the Godfather going to ask him to do. And that's how you find out that Sonny has been killed. Yeah. And then he goes back in the previous <laughs> chapter to lay out how it happened. And it's an interesting choice. And um, I'm, I'm kind of, it's, it's strange because um, that's sort of uh, unintuitive. It's like the opposite of how I think most authors would, would try to, to do that is that you would, well, you would want to be with the character during those, those big moments. But Puzo I, has this um, way of, of making it seem very removed almost yeah. it's like you're you're learning about it from the newspaper you're learning about it from like a minor character and then you're like what happened and he goes back <laughs> uh for me that so the, i i had a note about that specifically because i i was puzzling over that myself going why why does he choose to do this and i, I think there are certain effects he gets from it and one of one of them i kept coming back to was the feeling that this was all faded um, and so whenever like something would happen, it, I don't know, just the, just the fact that we're moving back and forth in time made it feel like this story has occurred and we're going to tell you the way it happened and, and it cannot be changed. It's immutable. Um, and it was always going to happen this way. Um, instead of the sense of like, I'm following along a story and anything can happen at any moment. It kind of felt more like I was being told this tale, this like ep this epic tale of something that has already transpired and yeah, and because of that, he's jumping around. And then the other thing it does is I think it, it also hooks you in a way because you're like, wait, what happened? How did that happen? And then so when you read that story, you were like, oh, now I'm going to get the real the real version of what happened, not just what somebody heard. And then so I was always like those scenes I was ex incredibly primed for when I read them. I was so excited to read about what actually happened to Sonny and so excited to read about the, the actual shooting of The Godfather. Um, so in, in, the, in those ways, it worked for me. Um, but yeah, it is it is kind of odd. I feel like I've seen it done a couple times and, and always to to elicit some sort of effect similar to this. Um, but yeah, I don't feel like it's done a lot today. At least I, I haven't seen it a lot in modern writing. All right. So let's get into a little bit of the plot itself. So I normally pull up like a, a plot summary for whatever we've covered and we kind of break it up into pieces. Um, all the plot summary I was finding online are for the films. Once again, talking about how like massive the films are, it was very hard to find something for the book. Um, but I did find a short a short bit here, which you'll see covers a lot. But we can kind of just like break this up into chunks and talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to do four chunks. So first off, after Don Vito Corleone is shot by men working for the drug dealer Virgil the Turk Soloso. I'm probably going to butcher some of these names, so I apologize for that. His two sons, Santino, Sonny, and Michael, must run the family biz business with the help of the conciliary. I'm not probably saying conciliary, that. Conciliary, right. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to struggle with some of these Italian phrases. Um, I apologize for that. Um, Tom Hagen and the two capos, Peter Clemenza and Salvatore Tessio. Uh, so when Salozzo and an Irish police captain are murdered by Michael, the conflict, conflict escalates into a full-scale war, which results in Santino's death and Michael, despite his wishes, ascending to the head of the family. So, woo, we discovered a lot of the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to back up a little bit before we get any further and talk about um, how that all goes down, um, especially the uh, – I thought the, the entire thing with, like, Michael being drawn back in and then um, – kind of taking charge and saying he's going to kill this cop and, uh, and, um, Solozzo. um, uh, that was so cool. And, and, um, I thought it was interesting how he played with expectations there a little bit. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the character arc of Michael Corleone is, um, is that, that like prodigal son, right? The, like the fact that he comes right. back and, and sort of takes, he doesn't want to be part of the family business and he, you know, wants to marry Kay and he's wants, goes off and joins the army against his father's wishes. So he's set up as, you know, this character who is reluctantly drawn back. Um, but then of course it turns out to be the most talented of his siblings at actually doing this mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and takes, this on. So um, there is a, uh, a line near the end of the book, um, and I, I marked it down, I think it's page 445, but there's this line at the end where um, Tom goes to talk to uh, Kay, Mike's wife, and, um, base, and she's, she's found out that Michael has killed Carlo Rizzi, um, and she's taken the kids and she's kind of sequestered herself somewhere. And Tom goes to talk to her and, and Kay says, uh, Michael is not the man that she married. And Tom says, if he was, he would be dead. And yeah. that I, I think is a, it's a great kind of nice character encapsulation because it's basically like, um, it's Michael's both ascent to power and his, his, and a fall morally, because in order to succeed in this world, he has to make moral compromises and do things um, that that um, put him at odds with the person that she thought she married. And uh, and it's a it's a great character arc because it's working, you know, on on two levels. You're rooting for him to succeed as godfather and you also know that it's going to cost him which is a a theme Mm -hmm. that's explored a lot more in the films Mm -hmm. um, especially in the second film than it is in the book the book really kind of ends with Uh him with michael on the ascendancy and michael kind of uh, now the new crowned king um, and doesn't go beyond that the second film um, Godfather Part Two really kind of digs more into like the reign of Michael Corleone, which I I think is a is a, a, an I'm improvement. excited for that now. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I wanted to mention how uh, to me family is such a big part of this book, and specifically there's sort of um, talking about that faded sense. There's also sort of an inescapable like the crimes of the father being passed on to the to the children, and and like how they can't like they're born in this family and they can't escape it. And I think anyone who comes from a family, like especially like a big family can sort of feel that like pull of, of, you know, like there are just certain things that you're born into and, and then you have to deal with and you have to decide am I going to go this route or am I going to go this route? And um, so in that sense, it is kind of universal, but um, yeah, I think just specifically talking about that, I think, I think it's, it's a really interesting part of this book and I'm sure the film. Yeah, definitely. There's um, a, Clearly, family is a huge theme in the book, a huge part of the story. Um, one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite character, uh, is Tom Hagen, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because he is he is chosen to be part of this family. You know, he's not blood related to the Corleones. He was adopted into the family, uh, and you know his character is really set up nicely in this one part where he, after finishing law school, he he tells the Godfather, "I want to work for you." and I, I would be one of your sons. So, you know, Tom um, is a great character because he, he he's cautious and he is level-headed and he's loyal, 
and he's chosen to be part of this family. And the other characters, you know, they, they sort of represent the different relationships with this legacy that their father has left them. You've got Santino, who's very much just like embraces it and, and especially like the violent aspects of it. He's just like all in. And, you know, Fredo. He wants who, it too much almost. Right, almost wants it too much. <laughs> and then um, Fredo, who isn't cut out for it. And is is basically, you know, and you'll see later on in, in the in the movies, destroyed by it. And then Michael, who doesn't want to be a part of it, but is fated to be a part of it. Um, so those are ele- different elements of the family dynamics are really, um, really the kind of compelling character pieces um, that make The Godfather, I think, so much more than just your typical like mafia story. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about Hagen. I want to go back to him for a second. Um, I also find it re- his character very interesting because he's newly appointed. So he's he's green and he's trying to figure it out. And you can see when things go wrong. And with the, the you know start, characters start to say that he's not a wartime. I also I want to ask what you guys think of that first. What do you think about the fact that the characters keep saying that he's not a wartime? Like, do you felt do you feel like it was just because he he didn't have it like he didn't have the stomach for it was it because he wasn't Sicilian like they kept talking about Yeah It is interesting because I think uh there's a certain tribalism and surrounding race that is absolutely like a huge part of this book and yeah he is like one character who plays against that a little bit cuz he's not Sicilian yet but then there's also this weird thing of like them accepting him as Sicilian so there's this weird like uh assimilation thing that happens um, but then it's still like he's never quite there. Um, so there's a lot tied up in like bloodlines and 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 all this stuff. And and some of that, I mean, it made me uncomfortable. But it, but I also think it's kind of the point to an extent too. Um, but I don't know if I'm giving them too much credit on, in that regard. What, what, what do you think about that, Fonda? Yeah, I mean, I I think um, Tom is he he's he is in the family, and yet he's also. Um, he doesn't have he there's there's this line i think in the book where you know where don corleone there's he says something like you weren't you're not sicilian but i made you into one Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and so he's kind of um sicilian by naturalization if you will but um but to to your point james of like you know is he not a wartime conciliary there's uh there's this the scene where um the godfather had, this is the the classic like horse's head in the bed mm-hmm. scene, mm. right? Where he's intimidating. He basically like responds to um, Waltz's uh, unwillingness to cast Fontaine by destroying his most prized possession, which is this racehorse, and leaving the head in his bed. Um, and uh, he instructs Tom to do this to kind of make all the arrangements for it. And Waltz wakes up and he's like horrified by this because he realizes that what the god the godfather's power is this willingness to just exact brutal violence on principle without like any warning without any threats mm. without any like grandstanding without any like you know cock waving kind of drama he's just like <laughs> well all right it's going to be this is the way it's going to be i guess you know like, yeah. and so and that's what that's what frightens him right is he realizes like this that he has all this power and this money and influence and it doesn't matter this olive oil importer is willing to kill him out of yeah. principle and um that's sort of that sicilian moral code that is both sort of terrifying and really compelling and i think that is something that tom lacks tom is like that kind of really cool-headed guy who's a great business um 
counsel uh, to the family. Um, but he doesn't have that kind of just sort of cold, innate brutality that both Vito Corleone and, and Michael have. Um, he's very, he's kind of reluctant to get Michael um, to be the assassin. Even when Michael's like, it has to be me. I got to be the one who does it. Mm -hmm. Michael's like, is there, I mean, Tom is like, is there any other way? You know, like he's trying to think of other ways that, that he doesn't have to do it. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, the scenes where um, uh, Sonny is on the war path against uh, the Tatalias and Solezzo, and Tom is really trying to moderate him and, you know, saying, like, you know, if, as conciliary, I would tell you to make the deal, right? Like, you know, I, I would also want to take vengeance, but, like, I, that, that'll just lead to this huge war, and he's trying to moderate some of Sonny's violent impulses. Yeah, it seems like he's very caught up in wanting to keep the peace. He doesn't, like, he ultimately doesn't want bloodshed. Maybe he acknowledges that it is occasionally necessary, but it also feels like he, want, he wants to avoid it at all costs, whereas that's not necessarily true for right. the other Right, but what's interesting, I guess, is the, the difference between the Don and the conciliary then, because that's exactly what I feel like Don yeah. doesn't want either. He doesn't want violence. He wants to try to solve everything with business, but he realizes that sometimes things need to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the difference, yeah. the key difference. And there. also, I, it's interesting um, that, uh, that you say that because part of the nature of violence in this story is how cold and long it takes mm -hmm. <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to exact it. So, like, for example, they know that Carlo, for a, a long time, they know that Carlo betrayed Sonny and led to his death. And yet Carlo is kind of like still living in the family compound and married to, um, you know, the daughter, uh, Connie. And Michael knows this and stands as godfather to their child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of me is like, well, gosh, if they knew Carlo was a traitor all along, like when they just like, why did they let him live on their family compound for so long and wait for years until they finally like knock him off at the end? But, um, you know, they didn't want to kind of show, my, my read on it is they didn't want to show their hand. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, Don Vito knew that he had made this pact um, with the other families. He had made the peace and he had done it all so he could make sure Michael came back safely without any hassles. Michael would assume leadership, but he wasn't going to forget anything that had happened. He wasn't responsible because he had stepped down by that point. In fact, he's dead by that point um, that Michael kind of has his huge... Um, final reckoning but they're willing to make the peace to do whatever to to play nice um, but they're never gonna forget like they're you know they're gonna come back and there's gonna be uh, there's gonna be a reckoning um, you know Michael knows that that uh, Fabrizio the guy who um, is responsible for the car bomb in Sicily is working at this mm -hmm. pizza parlor he knows this for years before he has the guy uh, whacked mm -hmm. Um, so that sort of idea of, like, vengeance is a dish best served cold is, mm -hmm. like, prevalent throughout all of this. I think Vito even says that, yeah. Yeah, and I love the the time that Michael just lets the cop hit him. And, like, he lets him punch him, to put him to the ground, and then doesn't doesn't freak out about it. Actually, I think he passes out, but he doesn't retaliate, and he knows that it's going to be something where, like, he's now seen as, like, I think it's just the that the edge that I think Don Vito and, and, and Michael have is just, like you said, the patience to wait and pull the trigger at the right time. One of the, one of the um, things we should talk about 
is the role of women in this book, mm, which yeah. is, uh, you know, very, this book is, is very misogynistic. Um, in yeah, definitely. The sense that like it's, this culture of, you know, it's an extremely uh, machismo culture um, that's portrayed. And, uh, you know, I think the, you know, even though we get the POVs occasionally of Kay and then Lucy Mancini, who is uh, Sonny's mistress, um, the women in this book are uh, really um, come in kind of different flavors of victim and bystander and mob wife. Um, and, you know, the, the way that, uh, that they're, that they're, um, that they exist in this world, uh, really allows them very little agency. And I don't, I am absolutely fine with reading books in which, um, sexism and misogyny, misogyny and patriarchy are part of the world or the structures. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I think it's one thing to portray the world in that way uh, and then have characters who still have agency or fight against it. But the characters mm. in this book that Puzo has written really don't. Mm -hmm. um, they're, mm -hmm. they're very, <laughs> uh, you know, character, very, very shallowly drawn. Um, and, uh, and that's one part of the book that, you know, is, is and granted it was written in a different generation, but is disappointing when you read it because you're like, gosh, this really, um, sucks. Like Connie has, has, she's like this royal daughter, if you will. Um, and she's beaten up by her, uh, her asshole of a, um, husband, the whole book. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, K seems almost like, um, she, it's almost like Michael tries to warn her in so many different ways about what she's getting into. And well, and I love that it's a joke at first too. Like he, he's joking right. about how it's dangerous and how she shouldn't get involved. Yeah. And, uh, and, and of course she still marries him and gets involved anyways. And then is like somehow disappointed and surprised at the end. I'm like, come on. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. like you knew what you were getting into. There was all these signs. So, um, so that that is that is an element um, that is very weird and uh, and disappointing, especially when you when you combine it with the fact that there's this whole like unnecessary vaginal subplot. Um, oh my that, god! Yeah. Like, Let's talk about that. Why, yeah. why do we need the like surgery subplot? Like what? Oh, what man. was that about? It was like he had read some article somewhere and <laughs> just decided, like, I'm going to put this you in the book. Yeah, yeah. The, the crazy <laughs> thing to me was that I was like, it's going to pay off. I was like, it's there's a reason that this happened. And I feel like at the end of the book, something's going to happen. And nothing ever happened. No. Nothing no. happened. No, there's no reason. It just was, it, it was ridiculous, yeah. So so there is a reason. The reason I want to, like, put forward, and, and this is, like, I'm not defending this reason, but I think it's the reason, um, is a lot of this novel to me felt like uh, wish fulfillment, on top of all the other things we've talked about and wish fulfillment on the type on the, on the part of the types of characters that are like Michael Corleone and Sonny and, and, and people who are around that kind of life. Um, he wanted this book to be like the ultimate wish fulfillment for those people. And I, and so like you said, the, the, the women characters in this book all just feed back into this and, and, and don't really fight it at all and just back it up and say that this is, you know, great. And we see them all like, like there's a really gross part where Connie's getting beat up, but she's like sexually turned on and all this stuff. And like, it just all feeds back into the idea that this is all the way it should be. 
um, in a sense. And we don't see any character really fighting back against it, which I was very disappointed with, too. Like, I really wanted to see, like, Connie really push back against it or Kay. And instead, we see all of these characters giving very little resistance to this lifestyle and just fully accepting it and even, like, playing into it. And then, yeah, the whole that whole vaginal subplot is so gross because it's very much like this this like fantasy on the part of the doctor and and the way it's set up. It really it really that read just like straight out of like a weird pulp, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, 60s magazine thing to me because it was it was pretty gross. <laughs> Other than that, that ridiculous subplot, the thing that that was the most icky to me is the. Uh, so we get the one female character who who does fight back, right? She's Johnny Fontaine's like current wife. When we start the story, oh, his ex-wife. She, she like actively like like doesn't like like she does whatever she wants and she shows some agency. But then the 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 part that I think is icky is that we get to the point where Johnny goes to the Don and the Don is like, "That's because you're not treating her how you should be treating her as a man." <laughs> and and that was the craziest right, part to me yeah. was that it's just like every single one of the characters. It's like if some of the characters. I, I guess it's it's like you're saying it's it's not it's not just a couple characters who are showing this to to add to their depth of a character. It's it's literally the entire book. It's just saying that this is how things like you said wish fulfillment, and this is how either the author felt or the people who were reading it he felt like the audience would react well to it. So well, I I think you know it's it's part of the culture that he's created where um, you know women are really objects. And not really something that figures into the cold-blooded calculations of these alpha males. Um, And I think that's best um, seen in the scene where Hagen goes to talk to Jack Waltz. And he's basically, he's giving Jack Waltz all these reasons why he should cast Johnny Fontaine. You know, he'll have the Godfather's friendship and it's going to help him with his labor union problems and all this stuff. And Waltz basically says, well, I'm not ever going to give the part to Fontaine because he, ba- he slept with this starlet that I am like, I was cultivating and he ruined her. And she was such a great piece of ass, blah, blah, blah. And Waltz mm-hmm. himself is disgusting because there's that really icky part where, you know, there's this, this like little teenage girl. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, uh, I think she's like 12. Yeah. yeah. So you already know Waltz is, is really gross. Um, and yep. he's basically, he basically tells Hagen, like, well, I'm not going to give, it doesn't matter what you tell me, you know, I, because you, Fontaine slept with this girl I wanted, blah, blah, blah. So he, he's, he's basically saying that, like, you know, this girl was mine and Fontaine took her, so I'm not going to do what you want. Um, and Hagen's reaction is astonishment because he sees Waltz as a lesser man and he knows Waltz is less, is like a, is, is a man of, uh, that is not to be regarded well because he's making decisions based on his feelings for a woman, icky as they are. Mm-hmm. And there's actually yeah. a line where he's saying something along the lines of, you know, uh, the, the like appeal of women was like just, you know, not, not something that would enter into the decision making of, you know, a real man kind of thing. Something along those lines, but he's basically like, has a very low opinion of Waltz because of that. So that kind of like really sort of, um, I think, encapsulates sort of the view bo- both two women and that's, and and again, reinforced by the lack of women in any sort of really meaningful role. I mean, also, you know, the like the mother 
um, who's, you know, she yeah. hears about, like, she knows something horrible has happened and she goes into the kitchen to, like, cook peppers because, like, that's, like, it's all she can do. They're so helpless. Yeah. Well, she's, she's, like, the exemplar of what you're supposed to be in the society. And we even see Kay, you know, at the end, pray, praying for Michael in the same way that the mother was said to in sort of becoming her. And, and and really just like accepting this role fully and yeah so that part of it was was definitely weird um, but, uh, but I did want to talk about so we were mentioning a bunch of subplots here and one thing that we want to that we should talk about for the book because I know a lot of them get cut from the movie is the sub- subplots um, I don't know how much of Johnny Fant- Fontaine is in the movie but I'd be interested to hear and like w- what what is added by the the extra Johnny Fontaine stuff we get um, that sort of thing I think the only real purpose for Johnny Fontaine um, is to kind of uh, create a subplot that or f- gives the Corleones a out <clears throat> in terms of their move from like the East Coast power base into Vegas um, later on. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of that connection. But I think Puzo put in Fontaine um, more as kind of a a um, a, a way to sort of tap into that sort of Hollywood celebrity kind of connection to the mafia that like he, he wanted to draw. I had read somewhere that he based Fontaine on um, Sinatra. Wow. wow. I could <laughs> I totally that. see that. Which, I was thinking of Sinatra yeah, when so, I was reading uh, him. So I think that's why Fontaine is in there because, um, because Puzo wanted to create this allegorical character and sort of take a dig at Hollywood and, uh, you know, working in Hollywood and all the sort of sleaziness of Hollywood, which he knew about having worked in Hollywood. Um, and so that was sort of like a way for him to, to shoehorn in this allegorical character and, um, and bring like sort of Hollywood's culture sleaziness and tie it into the mafia and then also kind of in the end bring the Corleones West into Vegas and stuff like that. Um, but... Uh, you know, as a as a character himself, or as a like. Uh, otherwise, I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, you know, it has to be given the amount of page time that it's given. <laughs> so, so first off, when I was reading him, and it would talk about him singing, that's what it was. Because I started thinking, like, how would this guy sing? Like, what would this sound like? And I immediately thought of Sinatra. Yeah. I was like, oh, clearly he's going to sing like Sinatra. <laughs> um, so I was always picturing him doing that kind of that kind of vocals. Um, but then, yeah, what you were talking about with how the sleaziness of Hollywood, um, and Puzo does this a few times, where he he brings in something that's worse than. So it's like, oh, we're reading about the brutality of this, and and the way they treat women is so you know bad. But then it's like, oh, but it's not as bad as Hollywood, where it's even worse, and and these crazy parties, and everybody's underage, and and so then so in doing that, he always kind of elevates the family and you come back to them and say, well, at least they're better than this other thing and this other thing. And, and it's a clever way to make you root for them because it's like, yeah, he's, they're coming into this world and they're going to be at least have more respect and, and, and be um, more honorable in this, in this honorless, you know, you know, place. So yeah, it's, it, it, it does. Like, that's an interesting narrative trick he's playing. Yeah. There, I think. Yeah. I agree. Is that um, even, uh, even though, yeah, there's all these bad things that are going on in the mafia you know, compared to to some of the stuff that's in all, there's actually that scene. I think there's a line where Tom is like, "Well, this guy can become a movie mogul. Then, like, yeah. we should definitely <laughs> yeah. get in the business because, like, this guy's an idiot, and we would make a killing <laughs> if we got in." Um, and you know, there's a speaking of that. 
Another example would be um, the uh, recruitment of Michael um, of that ex-cop, Al Neary, I believe, who, um, you know, oh, used yeah. to be a cop. He, he's, he basically need, he needs his, like, his Luca Brasi, right? And yeah. he finds this cop who basically is kind of like, is, again, another of these characters who, um, you know, the system failed him, if you will, right? Like, he's, you know, he's a good cop. He believed in the system and it failed him. And now he's, you know, he's beholden to the family. So, um, you know, and the fact that, that, that uh, McCluskey is um, an antagonist and basically is like on the take for the Solozos, like, you, he, Puzo sets it up so, like, the cops are really no one that you're rooting for here. Oh, yeah. They're all corrupt and terrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, which you just mentioned, the, uh, one of the minor characters, I guess he's minor, uh, Luca Brazzi, who I really want to talk about um, because I found him really, really interesting. And I loved I loved the way he used that character um, and and uh, specifically how when he's when he's missing, how like everyone can't stop talking about him. And like, really, they're like, we'll be fine once we get him in. Where's he at? Can you reach him? And they keep calling him. They can't find him. And it creates, again, this like huge um, anticipation for like finding out what happened to him. And then when we get that scene and then it's also that um, and this is something that like Martin does so well later in Game of Thrones is is you have this character who seems like he's invincible. Right. And then you take him down. Right, right. <laughs> um, and he, you don't actually get to see him do. I mean, later we hear about some of the crazy stuff he did, but you don't actually see him do anything. It's all just people's like respect for him right. and, and his legend has grown so big. Um, and then he shows that like that doesn't matter because even he can get killed. Yeah. Well, then Sonny as well. When Sonny goes down, it's, yeah. it's like he's another one of those. He's basically having to take over, and Sonny is seen as like the strong force. And when he goes down, it's like who's really left, and then Michael's there to pick up the pieces. I mean, he's also it kind of clears mm-hmm. the way, right? Like these characters have to get cleared out um, for for Michael to ascend, and the same the same with Vito. Like I, I think it's like the father has to die for him to truly inherit the role and become the the new Godfather, right? Like he could never really be that as long as Vito was alive. Luca Brasi's is also interesting. There's also a really fascinating part I found where after all of that and after we've known all the legend, he finds out more and he finds out that Luca actually like murdered his own child that he had. Um, and that was like his dark secret. And so I, I like the way that that totally takes this character that like, I think he knows like, Oh, you like this character, do you? And then I'm going to show you like how brutal someone like that actually is. And then you, I, I was left feeling weird about the fact that I was so into this Luca character. Um, but it also felt right. Like it felt like that character to do the things that he did, especially uh, also the, um, the stuff with Al Capone's men, the description right, of right. how he dealt mm-hmm. with the Al Capone men. It's like, it's crazy. Started like chopping them from like feet yeah, up yeah. with an ax or something. It was wild. <laughs> and then one of them just swallowed a t- like a shirt to kill himself. <laughs> right. Um, really, really brutal, but cool scenes. Um, it's great how he sets Luca up as this larger than life character and yeah. yet has him killed in like a really sort of, you know, um, uh, it, it, it very like just knocked off, you know, almost matter yeah. of factly. And yeah, he doesn't like, like take anyone down with yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, like a, yeah. you know, it's very much the sort of like live by the sword, die by the sword kind of scenario, right? Um, but but it's interesting because <laughs> you don't actually get much page time with Luca Brasi mm. at all. No. But he's this like sort of, it's almost like he's the the hand of the dawn, like he's a weapon, 
right? That like mm-hmm. the the family needs, um, and uh, and it's a way of reminding the reader that like you know yeah you've got all these characters who are very honestly like very soft spoken, very reasonable people, but they're backed up by just like brute violence, mm-hmm. and the dawn. A part of you know the, the 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 greatness of the dawn is that he knows this and he has Luca Brasi as part of his power structure. And, and speaking of uh, uh, back uh, for the dawn, uh, I also really loved his backstory. There's like a, a, yeah. a part of the book where we get his rise to power, and I didn't I didn't think we were gonna get that, and and I loved it. Like it was so cool to, to for them to talk about like each step along the way of him becoming the godfather. Yeah, just wait until you get to the second movie. I was about to say that. I was literally about to say you're gonna love the second movie then. Yeah, but actually, okay, the cool. whole structure of this book is a little all over the place. Um, if I recall correctly, it's yeah. like it's broken up uh, into like seven parts or something like that. Books. They yeah, call them books. books. Yeah. And yeah. You know, the, the structure, I'm not sure if Puzo had put much thought into the structure, to be perfectly honest, because we start with the family mm-hmm. and, you know, we've we kind of follow the main plot for quite a while. And then we've got like, you know, we, then we go back and forth to Fontaine we go back, well, we go to Sicily with Michael, and then we go all the way back in time <laughs> to Vito's backstory, and then we come back. Yeah. So it's not its not like a very neatly structured book, but it does yeah. feel as if, to your point, Luke, that it's, that it's almost like fable-like because it's mm-hmm. of the omniscient voice and these like, um, these, these, these situations where you're, getting the major plot points um, in after they've happened and you're moving around. It's almost like, you know, the omniscient storyteller is like, okay, well now let's like, let's, let's talk about the backstory of, of the dawn and let's spend a book doing that. It, it, it's not actually that long a book, but it packs a lot in there. Um, oh yeah. And, and, and almost like then there's parts that you could have cut obviously. Hmm. In my, yeah. Well, in you my know, talking about, how uneven it is. You have a book devoted to that, like integral, awesome part, and then you have a whole book devoted to Lucy and her like vaginal right. surgery. Like how are those has. both like, books? That's a whole book. Like how are those books? I yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Like oh my god. Yeah. Um. And, and I think there's a couple others like that where it felt very like okay, this is. I think it's the Johnny Fontaine stuff. We often get like a whole book about Johnny, right? And it would be like him going to parties, and then you get the thing with Nino coming out, and him introducing Nino, and like. And then you also, I don't know. I mean, I think there's like two and a half straight pages of like Johnny's, you know, womanizing and his predilection for virgins or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which is, and and it's made in a way to make him seem like better than the other actors in Hollywood. Like it's, 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 it's all like, it's like he's such a womanizer, but it's okay because he actually like talks to women too and cares (laughs) a little bit. So we're supposed to say it's okay. Like, I don't know. Yeah. A lot of that stuff was really sort of bizarre and and uh uh yeah it felt very wish fulfillment to me too like like if you're like this i'm telling you it's okay because like you're not that bad there are worse people than you and everybody cheats on everybody right like nobody's faithful in this society um even michael our you know hero gets married to this woman that he never even speaks to and he already decides he wants to marry her because he gets like the thunderstruck or whatever (laughs) Um, so that was kind of weird, and he just like decides to marry this this, and then and then she only serves the purpose of of dying, and then being like Michael's going to avenge her That's now, right. right? Yeah, I don't think she actually yeah. has any speaking lines in the book that I can really think of. 
I, I, I agree. <laughs> so brilliant and yet so flawed. Yeah, I think she speaks only in Italian. Right. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean it it was it's it's an interesting book. Um I had a lot of fun with it for sure. Uh let, let me let me end with this final bit of plot here and we can talk about the end, I guess. Uh, the novel culminates when Michael has his two main enemies, the, uh, the novel's main antagonist, Emilio Barzini, and a lesser but severely important antagonist, Philip Tatalia, assassinated. After the total elimination of the Tatalia family and the Barzini family, Michael sells all of his business in New York with the intention of making Corleone family a legitimate business in Las Vegas. So there is also like that interesting arc of like first off there's two things going on there there's the 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 culmination and the the sort of like just desserts and the the revenge that's been planned for so long um which is definitely terrifying like you were talking about the idea that people could could be planning to kill you for years and just like talking to you to your face and 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 seeming so friendly and then actually like no this has all just been a plan to kill you um that's terrifying in in a sense too right like what what, what never knowing what's going on um and then and then yeah and then you get sort of the also the move of the Corleone family kind of going legit which is also kind of an interesting part of this plot well, it's, and it goes to what Don Vito wanted because he didn't want to get into the narcotics and everything he knew that that was going to be too illegitimate so i think that michael sees that as like the template to go off of he's like if i the more legitimate we get the safer we're going to be uh going forward especially with like the new power structure that's coming in um but i also definitely want to talk about the fact that Michael becomes a full-on godfather. He becomes the, the godfather of Connie's kid. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that, I mean, that the idea that he, in quick succession, becomes a godfather and, like, is taking on this role and then quickly eliminates any any enemies that he has and any, any basically, threats coming at them. And then, at the, while also expanding, um, I think, is really showing how he's going to continue on. And I think that you'll be interested to see what happens in Godfather Part 2. Yeah, this is one place where I think the films really do kind of take the source material and then extrapolate it and become their own story. Um, Because the book really sort of ends with Michael establishing the security of his leadership. There's, I think, there's there's a part after the dawn dies where Michael has a conference with, like, Tessio and Clemenza and Hagen. And he's... He's nominally the Godfather now, but he's not yet the Godfather in 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 like kind of true um, in the true sense. They're not yet calling him Don Corleone, and his mm-hmm. position seems very far from secure because now that the Don uh, Don Don Vito is dead, you know they lose his personal connections to the politicians and the judges and all that stuff. And uh, there's definitely this sense of like, oh, now the, the great man is dead and like all the enemies are going to kind of like come together and there's going to be um, there there's going to be a reckoning. Uh, they're going to try and take Michael out, which is um, which kind of leads to, to, to uh, Tessio's death. Right. That whole like, OK, someone's going to come to you to try and make the peace and that's going to be the traitor. And it's interesting because Tessio is like this big lieutenant throughout the story helps them in the war and all that is the loyal guy. But it, it seems like at the end, he believes that uh, they, the Corleones can't win. So he ought to, he has to throw in his lot with the enemy um, and obviously loses his life because of it. So it ends with Michael kind of um, putting to rest these questions of whether or not he can take his father's place. And that's where the book ends. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it sets it, it sets 
up uh, you know the story for actually a lot more, which is where I I think um, the movies rightfully eclipse the books because they go past that question of like, okay, so how does he actually do it, and what cost does he have to pay? Mm-hmm. I, I think an int- the question that comes up to me, and I'm I'm assuming this is addressed in the movies, is is it possible for this person and this family to move beyond the criminal? enterprise and go legit is that possible uh, because we see we see that it's been passed on from Vito to Michael and um, we see that Michael's having children of his own and he wants them he talks about wanting them to go on to be you know professors and, and not be part of this this world and I think the question becomes like is that possible can you escape the sort of um, family I, I guess there's like a cycle of violence built into this family and and this is a we've seen this in other works as well. Uh, like Stephen King loves to talk, like do stuff about cycles of violence being passed on, and and I think you can see that in this too. Except for it's instead of like um, abuse, it's more like uh, the, the the violence of the family against everything, against the world, and how when you're born into that, um, how inescapable it seems like it is to me. Like because I severely doubt that that this is possible for him. Oh, and I I think. Uh... That's where one of the reasons why um, the Godfather Part Three is disappointing, because um, it it could have uh, I think you you could have seen more of an answer to that question than you do in the, in the Godfather Part Three. I think you definitely what Godfather Part Two does is really show um, that that Michael. Uh, he, he, he makes moves to make the family more legitimate, but um, can't escape that cycle of violence at all. Um, in fact, becomes like more pulled into it even further. And, um, you know, Michael's kids, they feature prominently in the third movie. Um, okay. but, but they don't ever really come into their... Like, there's not, there's not the sort of... Um, succession story uh, mm. that you find in The Godfather Part 1. Um, the, you, that's not part of Godfather Part 3 in the sense that, like, I, I feel like The Godfather Part 3 sort of tries to address what you were asking, but doesn't fully succeed. And I know we're not going to talk specifically uh, about The Godfather yeah. Part 3, um, but but the, the, I think part of the reason why it's a little disappointing is because it doesn't answer that question. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that being so frustrating. So I just have one more like kind of scene that we that we passed over that I wanted to talk to you guys about that I felt was like I, I think it really rivals some of the stuff that goes on in the in the movie is the the meeting of mm-hmm. the five families and the speech that that oh, yeah. Vito gives and the way that he tries to play to their compassion and he basically says like we want our kids to grow up and be painters and like you were talking about like the be scholars and go on to do these great things um and we need to prop them up with like our courage in this moment and like stop fighting i just thought that was really powerful stuff like he he really killed that that scene and and like cemented what like don vito's legacy would be for the family and everything and and i think that michael tries to to emulate that and um to a differing level of success yeah that's a great scene because this is one of those moments where like as you know as a writer um you kind of understand this idea that there's what's said and then there's like what's unsaid. Right. So Mm -hmm. there's, there's like what the actual 
characters are saying, but then like what you kind of know is going on underneath, right? Like, you know, I mean, and you find out later that like, yeah, the Don is making the piece for very pragmatic reason because he wants his son back um, and he doesn't want there to be any trouble and he needs to kind of buy his family time. Um, but, uh, and yet this, this scene with the five families is so, um, it's so great because like in a, you, you kind of get these different characters, you can really picture it. Um, but the Dawn comes across mm -hmm. as really forgiving and magnanimous and like mm -hmm. morally upstanding. And, uh, and also, you know, you know, there's other stuff going on. Like, you know, he's, this isn't it. This isn't just the surface speech he's given. Like he's, he's got other things. Yeah. In his mind. And what's crazy is that the other, the other heads of the families don't, don't realize that. Like, how could they not know that he's going to get them for, for all the stuff that's going on? He's the, but he's just that like magnetic, like that engaging. And like, they, they all just like, uh, respond to what he says and buy into it. And hope, I guess they're hoping that, that it all ends more peacefully. Yeah, he's convincing, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm also not entirely sure they do buy it because I I get the sense that after he's um that after he's dead, they probably figure, you know, now's the time to go after the Corleone. Yeah, that's true. Um yeah. and you know, th there's this sort of like balance that all the characters are playing of like, you know, we will is it business or is it personal? And there's actually a yeah. speech between um Tom and Mike where Tom is basically like, it's business, like, you know, all this is business or something. And then Mike uh, basically says, um, well, no, the truth is it's all personal. That's like the reason mm -hmm. why I don't, why like my father mm -hmm. is, is a great man is because like he takes it all personal. And so yeah. there's that, that sort of like, yeah, you hear it all the time. Like you hear the characters oftentimes say it's not personal, it's just business. But no, it's personal. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that kind of like that that um, play with like sort of the mor the morality of what they're doing is is interesting too because it's like it's you you can you can really rationalize they're rationalizing the violence, mm. but like come on like you, <laughs> you know you you know that you know that uh, that it's personal. So. Well, and that's like Son Sonny's uh, flaw is that he doesn't he doesn't have the ability to pretend, right? Like t he wears on his sleeves. He takes everything personally, which everybody does, but he doesn't have that veneer of like, oh no no, I don't take this personally, um, and, and due to his temper. Um, but going back to that scene with the Godfather uh, and the families, um, I love. There's a part uh, where he starts talking about. How reasonable he is, and then, but then he, then he, and 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 how he just needs, he wants his son back. Um, but then I love the part where he talks about how he's also superstitious, and how if certain things were yes. to befall Michael, and he has this list of things that could happen, and then he, he ends with, and if he were even struck by lightning, I would still, you know, due to my superstition, believe that somebody here had something right, to do with it. Right. Like I, like that was so, it's so cool because it's all subtext yeah, and yeah. it's all like, don't, you know, nothing better happened to him or I am going to blame you. Uh, so, so cool. Like very well done. Um, oh, and then also the, the, the omniscient narrator tells us that the speech would be remembered like Churchill's speech and which really elevates it to like, this would, this would go on to live in legend. Right. Right. And, and yeah, which is, which is really cool. <laughs> It, it sets it up and then he delivers too, right? Like he sets he sets it up like this is gonna be really epic and then and then it is, um, which was which is very well done, very cool. 
Um, all right, so I think this is probably a good spot because we're going to come back to this story a lot for the for the movies. So this is probably a good stop to leave it for now. I have a lot of stuff I didn't get to in my notes, but I think it's fine because I think we'll have more opportunities to, to revisit um, as we go forward. But uh, before we stop, I do want to remind everybody that we're going to be reading Jade City while we watch the movie uh, or the week of watching the movie. So we invite our listeners to do, do it as well. Um, and, and we're not going to cover Jade City. And in fact, I hope that we'll be able to cover it when it's one day adapted. Um, that would be, that would be really cool. <laughs> um, I, I personally picture like a, like a Netflix series, I think is, is my, where I see it. But yeah, it's, we'll, it, who yeah, knows? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, I think too, having just turned in the second book. Um, yeah, it would be too much to fit into a film. If such a thing right, would right, ever right. happen. Right. <laughs> But yeah, so I invite our listeners to, to join us in doing that. But uh, otherwise, uh, where can people find you online? Fonda? Oh, they can find me on uh, my website, which is FondaLee.com, or on Twitter, at Fonda J. Lee. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you again next week and the week after about the movies. I think it's going to be really fun. And uh, this, this, was, this was awesome. This was a delight. Likewise. Talk to you guys soon. Okay, this week we want to thank one of our patrons. Uh, he's been a longtime patron. Chris C., thank you for your continued support. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and if you'd like to find out how to become a patron, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Also, if you have any feedback you'd like to send us or any questions about The Godfather, especially if you have anything for Fonda, uh, send that on to inktofilm at gmail.com or you can message us on uh, one of our many uh, social media sites like uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram where we're at inktofilm on all of those. Another way to help out the podcast is to leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, we just passed the 50 mark, so we're looking to go yeah. to 100 now. So if you want to yeah, help us that'll be our, new goal. Journey, <laughs> our journey to 100, uh, we would really appreciate a rating and review. And this week we wanted to thank AJ Pro and Universal Free Beats for the use of our intro and outro music. And thank you one more time to Fonda for coming on. It was so much fun, and we're looking forward to watching the movie and, and talking to you about that next week. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to getting into her book, Jade City. Once again, uh, we invite all our listeners to check out that book. Uh, And we'll be back next week for the film. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.